Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by my friends over at ChopC60.com. If you haven't heard of Carbon 60 or otherwise called C60 before, it is a powerful Nobel Prize winning antioxidant that helps to optimize mitochondrial function, fights inflammation, and neutralizes toxic free radicals. I'm a huge fan of using C60 in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle to support your immune system, help your body detox, and increase energy and mental clarity. If you are over the age of 40 and you'd like to kick fatigue and brain fog to the curb this year, visit shopc60.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS for 15% off your first order and start taking back control over your health today. The products I use, I use their C60 in organic MCT coconut oil. They have it in various different flavors. They also have sugar-free gummies that are made with allulose and monk fruit. They also have carbon 60 and organic avocado and extra virgin olive oil. When it's combined with these fats, it absorbs more effectively. And carbon 60 is great as a natural energizing tool because it really helps your mitochondria optimize your energy production. Now, if you take it late at night, for some individuals, it may seem a little bit stimulating. So that's why we recommend taking it earlier in the day. And it will give you that great energy, that great, great mental clarity that you want all day long. It will help reduce the effects of oxidative stress and aging and really help you thrive. So again, guys, go to shopc60.com. Use the coupon code JOCKERS to save 15% off your first order and start taking back control of your health today. If we're going to be healthy in the 21st century, we have got to keep inflammation under control. Inflammation is literally the root cause of all the different degenerative chronic health conditions, things like Alzheimer's, heart disease, Parkinson's disease, cancer, diabetes. These are all characterized by chronic inflammation. And so I went ahead and I interviewed some of the top experts in the world when it comes to inflammation and I actually created a summit. It was called the Chronic Inflammation Summit. We hosted it in May of 2021. You may have listened, you may not have, but I wanted to share some of my favorite interviews on this podcast. And this is one of them. You guys are going to get so much value out of this podcast. And if you know anybody that's struggling with any sort of chronic health conditions, maybe they have pain in their body, digestive issues, autoimmunity, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, brain issues, please share this podcast with them. It can literally change and save their lives. And if you haven't already, take a moment and leave us a five-star review. Your reviews help us reach more people and impact more lives. Thanks so much for doing that. And let's go into the show. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Chronic Inflammation Summit where we're talking about how to reduce inflammation in your body and help your body heal and function better. I'm your host, Dr. David Jockers. And today, our title is Blood Sugar, Insulin, and Chronic Inflammation. We're gonna talk all about blood sugar 
insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes, everything you want to know as far as that goes. And we've got a great guest. This is Dr. Brian Mole. And Dr. Brian is the founder and medical director of Sweet Life Diabetes Health Centers. And he's known worldwide as the Diabetes Coach. He's hosted multiple diabetes summits and the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast and was named one of the top 50 functional medicine doctors in America. And you can find him at drmole.com. So Dr. Brian, welcome to the summit. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I always love talking to you about blood sugar, insulin resistance, all things diabetes, and of course, how that relates to inflammation. You're always a great conversation to have. And so let's start by talking about what is blood sugar? How does our body kind of regulate that? And what happens when blood sugar goes up when we have hyperglycemia? And what happens when it drops too low and we have hypoglycemia? Okay, cool. So, um, so sugar is a fuel and it's required for for the production of energy in our cells, um, for many of our cells. So the majority of our cells can burn uh, both sugar and fat in the mitochondria. Uh, some cells, like our red blood cells, can only burn sugar. Uh, so they don't really burn sugar. They metabolize sugar in a little bit of a different way. So uh, sugar is absolutely required as a fuel not to confuse that with dietary sugar, though dietary sugar is not required um, because our body can produce glucose, it can produce sugar from a variety of different substrates, uh, which we can get into later. But the point being, we need uh, sugar as a fuel source to produce energy. So blood sugar is essentially the uh, glucose that is floating around in our bloodstream at any given time. And it's actually a very, very small amount, um, about a teaspoon or so of glucose, depending on the size of the individual, is floating around in our bloodstream at all time. The rest of the glucose is stored either as glycogen in uh, muscles or the liver uh, for later use, or it's converted to something else that we can store long-term, for example, uh, it's packaged in the triglycerides and our fat cells that we can then uh, liberate when we need more fuel to reconvert either back to glucose or uh, to burn as fat. So when we look at the blood sugar, it's really important because uh, it is our uh, most readily available source of glucose to burn for fuel. Uh, in a fed state or in a sort of a normal state, the brain largely burns glucose. Uh, red blood cells burn glucose. And uh, our muscles burn glucose. Uh, all of our organs burn glucose. So we need uh, we need glucose readily available. So when the uh, when the blood sugar fluctuates any significant amount, it can cause some problems in the body. If if our blood sugar drops too low, for example, which we call hypoglycemia, then the brain perhaps uh, won't get enough glucose to be able to function optimally. So we start to get dizzy and lightheaded and irritable and uh, what some people would term hangry. Um, so we get those feelings of uh, anxiety that go with uh, not having enough glucose readily available for the brain to burn. Again, in that sort of normal fed state or, or, uh, or post-absorptive state right after 
we've uh, sort of transitioned out of a out of a sort of a Fed state. There's uh, other problems that can happen as well with with low blood sugar. But ultimately, for most people, it's not going to dip into a, a sort of a uh, a comatose type of a situation unless. Mm that's someone who's injecting insulin and forcing their blood sugar to be very, very low. But what most people with low blood sugar uh, will experience is that irritability. Uh, They'll get hungry, they'll have sugar cravings and that type of thing. On the other hand, if the blood sugar goes too high, then we have what's called glucotoxicity, where the excess glucose in the body actually binds to proteins in our organ cells and tissues and leads to uh, damage, almost like caramelization of those proteins and uh, creates like a sugar crust on top of them, which uh, allow, which, which actually causes them to malfunction. It's a form of oxidative stress or what's called glycation, and that leads to organ damage. And over time, those are called advanced glycation end products, and the abbreviation is AGEs. And so for the listener, AGEs spells out age, right? Ages. So they actually accelerate the aging process in the body. And in particular, they really damage like the endothelial lining of the blood vessels, which is why a lot of people with, you know, uncontrolled hyperglycemia or diabetes end up with congestive heart failure, damages the kidneys. A lot of these people develop kidney failure, it damages the nerves. You end up with like optic neuritis and peripheral neuropathy, right? So it's very, very dangerous to have that hyperglycemic state, but it's also dangerous to have hypoglycemia as well. And, and, and so we've got to really keep the blood sugar stable. So let's talk about insulin, this, uh, this hormone and, and, and what it does in our body and how somebody can develop insulin resistance. Yeah, so insulin is really the hormone that's chiefly in charge of fuel storage. And when we eat, as I mentioned earlier, we go into what's called this fed state. And the fed state is ruled by insulin. So when we have fuel coming in to our body through our diet, uh, insulin levels will rise at varying degrees depending on the mix of fuels in our diet. So carbohydrate has the greatest impact on insulin. So when we eat a large amount of carbohydrate, we're going to get a very quick and large surge of insulin because uh, its job essentially is to take any excess fuel and uh, put it into storage. So remember I said we only have about a teaspoon of glucose in the blood. So if you eat more than four grams, well, really, you're already full. So uh, any sugar that you eat, um, if it's not immediately used by your cells, which uh, will only happen if you just exercised. So you know, if you just, uh, for example, did some hardcore training and depleted all the glycogen stores in your muscles, Uh, then perhaps you're going to soak up a lot of that glucose out of your bloodstream immediately to refill those glycogen stores. But for most people, uh, that glucose that's coming into their diet in the form of sugar or carbohydrates, starch, is is excess. So Mm -hmm. the body, the pancreas releases insulin, and that insulin then causes us to store that glucose, either as glycogen or 
more commonly as uh, we'll, we'll take it to our fat cells, transport it to our fat cells, uh, convert it into triglycerides and store it as fat, uh, something called de novo lipogenesis. So those are, um, uh, that, that's how uh, basically insulin controls carbohydrate. To a similar degree, when we eat protein or fat, we have uh, an insulin release, but it tends to happen much less. So protein, uh, a protein-rich meal will, will have about, about a third of the insulin uh, release that, that a carbohydrate-rich meal would. But we do need insulin to drive amino acids into our muscles, for example, and, and other places. So we'll release some insulin there. And, uh, and even fat will have sort of a delayed uh, insulin uh, release uh, in order to hold the fat into our fat cells you know, as we uh, store that fat from our diet. So insulin is, is basically the storage hormone. Its main role is, is when we eat. Uh, and then when we fast, so about four hours after eating, we go into what's called a post-absorptive state, which means we're, you know, we're not eating and our body's dealing with all the fuel that we just took in and it's liberating fuel from storage to continue to run our body. In that state, insulin becomes very low. So insulin basically turns off, uh, our insulin levels drop, and that allows us to start to burn fat and to start to pull glucose out of our liver and muscles to, to use for energy. Yeah, that's good. And so basically, insulin's job is to help bring glucose. And we're basically just turns the body into a sugar burner as, as a fuel source and we'll right. end up storing. And then when insulin is low, we start burning fat for fuel. This is kind of how we cycle between different energy sources. When insulin's up, we're burning sugar. When insulin's down, we're burning fat for fuel. And insulin's also very, very important for sex hormone production and, uh, and also thyroid hormone activation. So uh, insulin's a really important hormone, but the, the issue in our society is most Western countries, people are are producing too much insulin. They have too much insulin in their blood. And so let's talk about insulin resistance. Yeah, so there's, there's kind of two factors here with pathogenic insulin resistance. And uh, there's insulin resistance, which essentially is the idea of not properly responding to the signals from insulin. And uh, not to get too complicated, but there's actually several mechanisms that uh, can occur leading to insulin resistance in the, you know, on a cellular level. So it's not uh, just one thing. Um, so no, let's not... talk about those. Let's, let's go into okay. this. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so there's actually many different causes or contributing factors to insulin resistance. Some of these, by the way, are totally normal. So there are there's states of physiological insulin resistance. Um, for example, uh, oftentimes when we're exercising, we come we become more insulin resistant because we want to be able to use fuel, not store fuel. Uh, we also cortisol release makes us more insulin resistant, and it does that on purpose because. Cortisol, one of the main roles of cortisol is to liberate fuel sources. So when we release cortisol in a state of stress, we're supposed to liberate glucose from the liver 
from the muscles. We're supposed to liberate fat. Um, so those are readily available when we're fighting or fleeing. Mm. So cortisol has this effect of uh, making us insulin resistant in the short term. Now, what's supposed to happen is as cortisol levels drop, uh, we, you know, we become uh, more insulin sensitive again. One of the challenges is we live in a culture where, you know, we have chronically elevated cortisol levels. When we don't sleep properly, uh, four or five hours of sleep can lead to elevations of cortisol the next day, which can make us more insulin resistant. So there are some factors there that are supposed to be normal, but uh, can get out of balance due to you know, lifestyle factors and so forth. Um, and then there are pathological states of insulin resistance, which can come from things like toxins. So there's a variety of toxins like phthalates, for example, and uh, BPA, BPS, which are found in plastics, different dioxins and chemicals. Arsenic has been linked to, um, mm. to insulin resistance. And so these chemicals can can sometimes actually bind to insulin receptors, uh, therefore blocking the, uh, the normal insulin binding. Um, there's also evidence that they can interfere with the a signal cascade. So when insulin binds to its receptor, we often talk about it being a key that like opens the door to allow glucose and other fuels to get into the cell. It doesn't work exactly like that. It's kind of a, it's a good way of imagining it, but it's really a whole cascade of reactions. There's uh, half a dozen or more different reactions that happen sort of once insulin binds to its insulin receptor, which allows, uh, in the case of like, let's say, uh, uh, muscle metabolism, allows this GLUT4 uh, glucose transporter to rise to the cell membrane and open up a channel to where glucose can come into the cell. So, uh, in order, so, so from the insulin binding to the glucose transporter opening up this channel to allow glucose to come in, uh, opening the door in our analogy there, there's, uh, there's a whole series of reactions. So, it's almost like uh, you know, you rang the doorbell and one person went and told somebody else and one that person told somebody else and that person told somebody else and eventually somebody came to the door and opened it. So that's really uh, kind of a, a more accurate depiction of what happens. And there's different things that can block those signals. So there's, there's things that can get in the way of that. And all of that we just call insulin resistance um, when something blocks one of those signals. So uh, for example, fat can block different um, types of lipotoxicity can, can block those signals. And those, those fats, um, again, we're not talking about dietary fat, but we're talking about uh, fat that gets into our organs, that gets into our cells in places it's not supposed to be, and produces uh, chemical byproducts like sphingolipids and ceramides, which are basically toxins produced by pathogenic fat, which can then block these insulin signaling pathways. So um, again, I know a lot of that sounds complicated, but the, the idea here is that when um, 
you know, when, when you eat food and insulin's released, it's supposed to bind to its receptor and open up these glucose channels. And there's a lot of different things that can actually interfere with that happening normally. Uh, and we call that sort of a whole group of factors. Uh, we call that insulin resistance because essentially what happens is the signals don't get through properly and somehow uh, even if even if insulin binds properly to its receptor, somehow the message doesn't get through, so the the glucose channels don't open up, and we don't get the glucose into the cell the way we're supposed to. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a complex process, but we really have an epidemic of insulin resistance, and that's kind of characterized by the amount of pre-diabetes. And can you can you talk about the 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 diagnostic? classification of pre-diabetes and then how that progresses into diabetes. I'm glad you brought that up because the mechanism I just went through is not specific to diabetes. It's really just specific to insulin resistance, which can affect uh, and does affect many, many people even without diabetes. So pre-diabetes is often termed glucose intolerance because we don't properly uh, handle glucose. So it's almost like someone's gluten intolerant and they have celiac disease. Here they're glucose intolerant. And so uh, glucose, which is totally normal, uh, you know, to, you know, it's normal to have glucose in the body. It's normal to have some glucose in the diet at varying degrees. At a certain level becomes toxic and people with prediabetes become to some degree uh, less tolerant or intolerant to glucose. So uh, what happens essentially is because of this insulin resistance situation that I just described, when they eat glucose in the form of even natural uh, sugars like fruit or certainly added sugars, they can't properly metabolize it because uh, because they're insulin resistant, they're not able to get that glucose into the cells to burn it for fuel. So uh, what happens is that glucose becomes starts to elevate in the blood, and then it becomes uh, dangerous or toxic to the body. So there's a certain level of glucose that we can handle in our blood without too much of a problem. But once it really starts climbing, so uh, just to give you some some diagnostic uh, parameters. Typically, blood sugar runs around 80 to 85 milligrams per deciliter. If you uh, do a finger prick test or you go in the lab and have a, have a serum uh, blood draw done, you're going to have a blood sugar somewhere around 80 to 85 is normal. Um, it can go down into the mid-70s uh, in some people and be totally fine. Uh, it can go up maybe up to around 90 and be fine for most people. But once it starts climbing over 90 and certainly over 100, uh, that's where we start to talk about prediabetes. And it's not a problem, like it's not just a warning sign. Prediabetes is a condition in and of itself. And essentially, it's characterized by the same mechanism that causes type 2 diabetes, which is insulin resistance. So prediabetes should be taken to me just as seriously as type 2 diabetes because it's the same mechanism. And essentially, there's already damage being done 
even if you haven't crossed over into a high enough blood sugar to be called diabetic, it's still uh, a dangerous situation. So uh, typically when your blood sugar is between that 100 and 125 milligram per deciliter range, it's termed prediabetes and it's characterized by insulin resistance. Yeah, and then let's talk a little bit about diabetes. And I know that you've ha- you have different classifications that you focus on with diabetes. So can you go into those as well? Yeah, sure. So, so diabetes is generally classified as uh, type 1 and type 2, type 1 being autoimmune, type 2 being more lifestyle-induced, I guess you could say. There are genetic factors for both. But uh, type 2 is characterized, again, by insulin resistance. Um, but uh, there are some other forms of diabetes that are lesser known. We generally lump them into a category of 1.5, and uh, the most common of those is called LADA, L-A-D-A. It stands for Latent Autoimmune Diabetes of Adulthood, and uh, basically it's type 1 for adults. It's a more slowly progressing type 1. It's uh, not exactly type one, but it's also an autoimmune diabetes. So it's something that uh, is where the immune system seems to target certain uh, host tissue. So uh, self, you know, autoimmune means self, you know, self attack basically. So the immune system, our own immune system is either attacking our insulin molecules themselves or enzymes that are involved in the production of insulin or the cells, the islet cells and the pancreas that make insulin. So there's uh, four or five different antibodies associated with autoimmune diabetes. And when we have autoimmune diabetes, the pancreas gets damaged or destroyed and can't, uh, can no longer produce this hormone insulin. Uh, type 2 diabetes is uh, totally different. So the pancreas is just fine, in, especially in early type 2 diabetes. It's working, it's making insulin. The problem is the body is not responding to insulin. So uh, like I described earlier, uh, something's going wrong in, that, uh, in those signals between the insulin molecule and what it's supposed to actually do on a cellular level. So, so type two is, is insulin resistance. Now, interestingly, there was a, uh, there was a study published in Lancet, um, or a paper, I should say, published in Lancet a couple of years ago, which uh, reclassified diabetes as five types. And uh, two are autoimmune, the other three are not. So they looked at obesity-related and non-obesity-related diabetes. And one of the things that was interesting is the majority, the largest group, I should say, not the majority, but the largest group out of those five was uh, people who were, were not severely insulin resistant and not obese. They were mildly overweight and had mild insulin resistance, but were type 2 diabetic. Hmm. And that was the largest group. It was almost 40%. So 40% of people, and they looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of records. Uh, so 40% of people with type 2 diabetes or, or with uh, what looks like type 2 diabetes are not obese and don't have a severe insulin resistance. They are insulin resistant and they typically were overweight, but, but not obese. So that means their BMI was you know somewhere in that 
you know, between say 25 and 30 range. So, uh, you know, those are the people walking around with a little bit of a gut or maybe they look normal. Maybe they've got some love handles or, you know, maybe just a little bit of a extra girth around the midsection, but you wouldn't call them fat, you know, per se. Those are the people that is actually the largest category of people with diabetes. So uh, Hmm. not what many people would think. That probably has a lot to do with the autoimmune component because there's also thin people too that you would think Correct. that person's thin. In fact, on the outside, it looks like that person's probably fit, they're thin, and they can have type 2 diabetes as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's very true. So there's a couple of different factors there. Um, you're right that uh, sometimes it is autoimmune and sometimes it gets classified as type 2, but really it's, yeah. it's this latter condition um, yeah. where it's misclassified as type 2 because, you know, maybe they developed diabetes when they were 45 or 50. And so doctors would say, well, it's not type 1, yeah. but it could be LADA and very few doctors yeah. actually test for that. Right. I mean, very few. So, you know, maybe like less than one-tenth of one percent. So, and those are pretty much endocrinologists who, you know, who, who specialize in this. So, so if you're listening to this and, and your blood sugar is high, like it's, you know, above 150, let's say, and you're lean, you know, you're thin and uh, you were told you have type 2 diabetes, make sure you go get those diabetes antibody tests because you could be treating the, the wrong problem completely. Yeah. So uh, that's, yeah, that's really important to pay attention to. Yeah. In some cases, the blood sugar will be real high, but insulin, mm-hmm. if you actually test the fasting insulin, it's fairly low. Right. And that again, exactly. can be related to the autoimmunity. So the body's not producing enough. Exactly. And also I was talking with uh, Kiran Krishna and he was talking about endotoxemia actually mm-hmm. being a huge factor in creating uh, basically a, a central uh, desensitizing the nervous system to insulin mm. as well. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't really yeah. looked at that, but I know that um, you know this the the toxemia issue. I should say not specific to the nervous system because I haven't looked at that component. But yeah, uh, but certainly toxemia is a is a big issue. I mean, we see those toxins again uh, involved in insulin resistance, and also there's evidence. So with any autoimmune disease, it's not just, oh, I have you know, these genes for this. Uh, there's almost always a trigger. And yeah. with type 1, interestingly, one of the primary triggers is uh, alpha-1 casein from cow's milk. Mm. So kids who are fed you know, cow's milk formula yeah. or uh, drink cow's milk, that's oftentimes what will trigger the attack on the pancreas that will lead to the type one diabetes situation. And, um, and that can happen very fast. It's pretty scary. So the kid seems to be normal and thriving. And then all of a sudden they're losing weight rapidly. They're eating like crazy, but they're just uh, withering away to nothing. You know, by the time they get into the doctor, usually their blood sugar is four or five, six hundred. Um, so, it's uh, it can happen very quickly when that when that autoimmune disease gets triggered and it destroys mm-hmm. the pancreas. With this latter condition, it's much more slowly progressing. So, it can happen over five years, ten years. Uh, the problem is, again, we're not testing for it. So. Yeah. Uh, you can think you have type 2 diabetes. You can even be overweight 
at that point, but your blood sugar is very high, three, 400. Anybody who has a, has a blood sugar of over 300, I always recommend getting diabetes antibody mm-hmm. tests be, and, and an insulin test because uh, that's just really far. I mean, you're talking about four or five times normal yeah. at that point. So uh, something major is going on there and, and you, you definitely wanna, uh, don't just assume you have type two diabetes. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Paleo Valley. They make the most powerful, pure vitamin C supplement you can get. Because unlike most vitamin C supplements containing synthetic ingredients that are created in the lab, Paleo Valley Essential C Complex is made from three of the most potent whole food sources of vitamin C on the planet. Nothing weird, just food. Check them out at paleovalley.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS, J-O-C-K-E-R-S, to get 15% off today. Are restless nights stealing your sleep? Well, if so, I have a podcast recommendation for you. It's called Sleep Magic. On the Sleep Magic podcast, episodes are delivered in relaxing, soft tones, getting slower as the episode goes on with relaxing suggestions that encourage sleep. Sleep Magic has over 100 free episodes, so there are plenty of options to choose from, and the show is already trusted by hundreds of thousands of people who use it every night to get better sleep. So go subscribe to Sleep Magic now wherever you listen to podcasts and start listening for free today. Just search Sleep Magic on your favorite podcast app. Let's talk about some of the best nutritional strategies. You you, you uh, discussed earlier like a protein-rich diet. So let's talk about what you like to use from a nutrition perspective to help people, particularly with type 2 diabetes, but also autoimmune component. And you can also touch on type 1 diabetes as well with that. Yeah, for sure. So I think... Um... You know, when you're when you're managing diabetes or managing blood sugar, uh, one thing you have to think about is what has the greatest impact on your blood sugar. And generally, it's going to be carbohydrates. So, and that's not that's no secret. Uh, mm-hmm. The ADA states that. So, that dietary carbohydrate is you know the single greatest impact on on blood sugar levels. So, so if that's true, which it is then, um, you know, I think it makes sense to limit the incoming amount of dietary carbohydrate. Uh, Certainly, you want to cut out added sugars and anything you don't need, or that's at least not going to offer any nutritional benefit. So bread, for example, and pasta and so forth, that's basically Mm -hmm. just uh, starch. So that's a pure uh, energy food in the form of basically just pure glucose. So to me, there's really no reason to eat those things if you're trying to control your blood sugar. So uh, now you can make a you can make a case for something like uh, raspberries and blueberries and strawberries because they're phytonutrient rich and have some fiber. And there are studies that show that even the glucose in those uh, is slowly absorbed because of the the effect of some of the flavonoids and phytonutrients on the gut. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a so that's a sort of a different story, uh, you know. As we as we get more nutrient dense and nutrient rich in our foods, uh, we can start to balance out uh, what's the uh, you know the risk benefit of of some of the glucose or carbohydrates in those foods. But uh, but certainly we want to cut out any carbohydrate rich foods that don't provide a lot of nutritional value, like grains, 
Um, even beans and legumes, I mean, they've got some fiber and some minerals, but you can get uh, you can get that fiber and you can get those minerals from other places which don't carry the starch. So, so I think if you're if you're new at this, if you've got diabetes and you're trying to get your blood sugar down, we want to cut out as much of that uh, glucose in the form of carbohydrate as we possibly can. And so what are we left with uh, is going to be protein and fat. And um, neither will spike insulin. Protein does require a little more insulin than fat does for metabolism, but there's really no evidence that uh, that's a bad thing. So uh, what, we, uh, what we know is that the amino acids in protein will provide a little bit of energy in the absence of, of carbohydrate especially, but mainly will provide building blocks for muscle protein synthesis and the production of things like neurotransmitters and uh, detoxification in the liver and so forth. So I think it's a good idea to prioritize protein. That doesn't mean you need a high protein diet necessarily, but prioritize protein. So make sure you're getting some good quality protein at every meal. And then um, you can do like some fibrous vegetables, which provide a lot of those nutrients and fiber uh, without much energy and without much free glucose. And then uh, you're going to fill in the rest of your fuel requirements with, with healthy fats. Now, I say fuel requirements because I think it kind of depends on your goals and where you are and what your lifestyle looks like to determine how much fuel you want to consume throughout the day at any given meal. So if you, for example, are, are obese or overweight, and you're trying to burn fat and lose weight, then you may not need to consume as much fuel through your diet because you've got a lot of stored fuel on board already that you can burn. If you're lean and you're an athlete and you're you know, burning four or 5,000 calories a day through intense exercise, then certainly we've got to, concern, we've got to uh, consume more fuel throughout the day to be able to you know, fuel our, our metabolic rate. So uh, I think that that balance is one of the things that we try to really help our clients dial in uh, for them because you can't just say across the board, everybody should eat, you know, this percentage of fat, this percentage of, of protein, this percentage of carbs, or this many grams of, you know, each because it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Mm. Yeah, they have different, people have different, unique individual needs. Um, let's talk about, how about vegetable oils? Can vegetable oils like corn oil and things like that, can that impact somebody's insulin sensitivity? Yeah, so I think the, the big problem with most of those is that they're uh, produced in a way that's highly toxic. So you're taking an oil which in some quantities is, is fine. So like you know, if we had a good balance of omega-3 and omega-6 oils, let's say we we're getting some, some omega-6 oil from almonds or another nut, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, omega-6 oils are not healthy. I think in the right balance, they can be healthy and, and we need, um, it's actually, uh, you know, omega-6 fats are one of the two essential fatty acids, so we need them. The problem is when you take and squeeze corn, for example, and you squeeze the sugar and the oil out of corn, and then you refine it, 
uh, or you take rapeseed uh, and refine it into canola oil, now you've got a very toxic uh, stew, uh, you know, an oil that is highly denatured. The uh, bonds in there uh, have been oxidized and damaged. And uh, you've got basically a, just a highly inflammatory, toxic uh, product. And uh, inflammation, I didn't mention this earlier, but inflammation is probably the number one cause of insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So yep. there's studies that show, for example, certain inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha, interleukin-1 and 6 are very, very closely associated with insulin resistance. So they block those, that insulin signaling cascade that I mentioned earlier. And uh, those oils have been shown to uh, produce partly because they're toxic and partly because they're, they do drive pro-inflammatory pathways anyway. Uh, they can drive elevated levels of inflammation, which can lead to insulin resistance. And uh, that insulin resistance, by the way, I don't think I closed the gap on this either, closed the loop on this either. When we become insulin resistant, our pancreas makes more insulin. So uh, we actually uh, get elevated insulin levels, which causes us to not be able to uh, liberate fat from our fat cells. So we become more fat. Um, we start packing fat into places it's not supposed to be. Elevated insulin, hyperinsulinemia is associated with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Um, in fact, if you talk to like David Perlmutter and, and Dale Bredesen, uh, they kind of look at hyperinsulinemia as sort of the chief driver of uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. so, so this becomes a huge issue. And all of that driven by the, this inflammatory cascade, uh, which there are many causes, there's other toxins that can drive an inflammation as well, but, but these refined industrial seed oils like cottonseed oil and corn oil and uh, rapeseed oil or canola oil uh, are, are some of the primary drivers in our diet because they've just gotten, I mean, most people, most Americans, most people globally now eat tons of these oils because they're in all processed mm -hmm. foods. Uh, they're used in restaurants for cooking. A lot so of condiments, a lot of condiments, a lot of condiments salad absolutely. dressings. Like you can go to Wendy's and get a salad thinking you're being healthy, but the ranch dressing or whatever dressing they're using is loaded with these things. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, there's a there's a, a doctor by the name of Chris Kenobi, uh, K-N-O-B-B-E, who uh, if you go on YouTube and look up his name, he's got some great videos where he just destroys these industrial seed oils. He just pulls them yeah. apart over the course of an hour. And um, you watch one of his videos, you're not going to ever want to eat these things again. Yeah, so definitely got to avoid the soybean oil, corn oil, safflower oil, cottonseed, mm -hmm. canola, all those things that you were talking about. And really try to stick with like coconut oil or olive oil, butter, yeah, sure. right? Avocado oil, something along those lines. So what are your thoughts on uh, intermittent fasting with diabetes? Well, I think it's a great idea. So most people with type 2 diabetes, even if they're uh, in that overweight but not obese category, most people with type 2 diabetes are energy toxic. So they've got uh, too much fat stored 
in places it shouldn't be. And so we've got to be able to burn that stored fat, mm. um, essentially. And to do that, we've got to get our insulin levels to come down. So earlier I talked about being in the fed state where insulin's high or being in the post-absorptive state where insulin levels uh, basically get turned off and come down. And uh, when you're fasting, you're in that post-absorptive or fasted state, insulin levels are allowed to come down low. Now, I will say as a caveat, people who are highly insulin resistant and hyperinsulinemic, it may take... 24 hours for them to get their insulin levels down. I have clients who, you know, will do uh, 18 hours of fasting and their insulin levels are still high. So uh, for those people, because it's so pathogenic um, at that point, they may need to do prolonged fasting to really have, uh, you know, these types of benefits. But for most people, uh, if you go, uh, you know, even 10 hours, but certainly beyond 12 hours of fasting, uh, you're going to have a really significant impact on fat burning. You're going to be able to get your insulin levels to optimal levels, you know, right at normal or so, which allows you to burn more fat. It allows you to, to deplete the uh, stored sugar in the muscles and the liver, uh, which is good because that creates then a uh, you know, a sort of a, a vacuum for you to pull glucose out of your bloodstream or, uh, you know, out of your, uh, out of your gut and out of your bloodstream at your next meal, which is what we want. So fasting is, is really critical to reversing either prediabetes, insulin resistance, type two diabetes, or, or really any form of overweight or obesity. So, uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I think that for a lot of people, uh, they can do daily time-restricted feeding where they would do a, uh, uh, an extended fast of you know, 14, 16, 18 hours, have a restricted eating window, and then just you know, repeat that every day or maybe five days a week. Um, others can get into longer-term fasts. So, so the term intermittent fasting really is not tied to uh, any time period. It just means that we're fasting and then we're not fasting and then we're fasting again. So you could fast one day a month, for example, and you do that every month, you're, you're doing intermittent fasting, right? So time-restricted eating is typically uh, over a 24-hour period. So time-restricted eating would be what I just described. You uh, eat for six hours, fast for 18 hours, or eat for eight hours, fast for 16 hours, something like that. But then uh, oftentimes we'll expand it from there. So a 24-hour fast, you know, going from, say, lunch today to lunch tomorrow without eating, uh, that would be another type of an intermittent fast. And then maybe you eat the next day and then you fast again the following day and, and do that two or three days a week. That sort of eat-stop-eat method um, has been shown to be really effective for a lot of my clients. Sometimes we even get to, say, like a 36- or 40-hour fast before we really start seeing uh, deep benefits. Um, so uh, really, it's, it's a good idea to check your own blood sugar if you can do some insulin testing uh, with your doctor you know, after say a 24 hour fast or after a 40 hour fast to see where your insulin levels are. You have to do that in a lab, of course, but that can be a really helpful way to sort of gauge how long you need to fast to, to get the optimal benefits. 
Yeah, that's really good. That's really good information. I think intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding is something that pretty much everybody can do and have a lot of success with here. Now, type 1 diabetics definitely need to be really monitoring things, but it still can be done with good blood sugar stabilizing diet and lifestyle. And yeah. um, I always tell people, you know, like a great test of your metabolic fitness is can you go 24 hours fasting on just water and still feel good, have energy, be able to do all the things that you know, you need to do that day. And if you can, if you can do that without intense hunger and cravings and irritability and things like that, that's a sign that your body is more metabolically fit, fit and it's starting to burn uh, body fat for fuel. And that's a great thing. Now, just like you said, sometimes when people are, you know, very overweight, very obese, very insulin resistant, they need longer fasts. They need alternate day fasting or they're eating every other day or something along those lines to really, um, you know, get that insulin back under control. Now let's talk about some other lifestyle activities, right? Exercise, sleep, stress management, things like that, how important those things are. Yeah, all very important. And, uh, you know, we always start with diet. I think diet is a, is probably, you know, the longest lever, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna make the biggest impact. And uh, we talked a little bit about that, but start with low carb, dial in your uh, kind of prioritize protein, dial in your your energy in the form of fat and whatever carbs you're going to eat to match your goals and then use some fasting strategy. So I think that, you know, is, is a really good dietary strategy to uh, help to get your blood sugar under better control and reversing insulin resistance. Uh, but it's not the only thing. So physical activity, really, really important. Um, the more physically active you are, the more metabolically flexible you're going to be. So you're basically increasing your uh, energy flux. You're increasing your space for energy storage as you burn more glycogen from your muscles, as you build your muscle mass, you become more insulin sensitive. You have greater capacity for energy storage. You increase your resting or non-energy uh, induced, um, I'm sorry, non-exercise induced energy expenditure or your kind of your uh, resting metabolic rate goes up. So all of those things come from physical activity. Uh, really, really important to be as active as you possibly can. And uh, one thing that uh, I don't ever let my clients tell me that they can't exercise. Um, you know, I mean, I've seen enough people in wheelchairs who are elite athletes. You know, I've seen yeah. enough people who uh, have severe physical limitations and restrictions still be able to exercise. There's always a way to move your body. You just have to find ways to do mm -hmm. it that, you know, that fit you now. And, and then you can sort of expand that over time. So I think physical activity is really critical. Stress, uh, I talked about how cortisol causes insulin resistance physiologically. And so anytime we're under stress, and that could be overwhelm or, you know, sitting in traffic or arguing with our boss or our spouse or uh, just being unhappy, or it could be a, a physiological stress like gut dysbiosis or, you know, some sort of chronic infection or chronic pain, spinal pain, neck pain, back pain, those mm. types of things drive stress and elevate cortisol. So uh, any of that can raise our cortisol and adrenaline levels 
which will raise blood sugar and make us more insulin resistant. So we can't ignore the stress factors. We've got to be able to, uh, to bring that back into balance. Uh, you mentioned sleep. Uh, sleep is a huge issue. We know that a lack of quality sleep leads to dysbiosis in the gut, uh, leads to physiological insulin resistance. So, um, so if you're not sleeping, that can be a deal breaker. You know, I've had people who make significant diet changes, they're exercising, uh, they're doing seemingly everything right, taking a bunch of supplements, but um, their blood sugar just won't come down. And when we look at their sleep, it's like, well, yeah, I only get like three hours, four hours of sleep mm. a night, or it's very disrupted. And it's like, well, you know, we're not getting anywhere without fixing that. So we've, you know, we've got to be able to fix the sleep as well. Yeah, so important. And uh, let's finish off by talking about the best nutrients and herbs and supplements that you like to use with, with uh, managing blood sugar. Yeah, well, there's there's tons of them, and um, you know, don't ever let your doctor tell you there's no evidence um, for natural therapies and natural botanicals, herbs, vitamins, minerals, and nutrients for for uh, blood sugar control. Because, uh, I mean, if you spend even an hour in PubMed just typing in, you know, any of these, and I'll, I'll you know I'll I'll go through some of my favorites. Uh, you're going to be overwhelmed with data. I mean, it's there's just tons of it. Now, not all the studies are good, and and you do have to read the studies closely. One thing I always tell people to look out for is um, proprietary blends. So if you see sort of a um, you know a glucose formula that uh, they list you know 20 different ingredients and it's 4,000 milligrams of a proprietary blend. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful with those because many times uh, the main ingredient there is sawdust or, you mm. know, some sort of fiber and they're putting, you know, very small amounts of, you know, all these other ingredients that sound really good, but you don't know how much of them are mm. actually in the product and, uh, and they're all expensive. So the problem is they use, you know, tiny amounts of these put 20 different things in, you look at the formula and you go, wow, look, this has everything in it. This looks like a great formula, but it turns out they don't hit the minimum effective dose of any of those things. So it's basically worthless. So we do have to be a bit careful. Um, you know, research saying berberine, for example, can help to lower blood sugar uh, is great, but if the study was done using 1500 milligrams of berberine and you take a hundred, mm -hmm. then uh, you might just be wasting your money uh, because yeah. it may not be doing anything. So, so we do have to, we do have to make sure we're doing the right amounts of these things and also in the right doses. So chromium, for example, is a mineral that's uh, been studied for decades to improve glucose tolerance it helps sort of potentiate that GLUT4 transporter that I mentioned earlier in the, in the cell. So it allows your body to absorb glucose better. It's actually involved in that process. And so by kind of super saturating our cells with chromium, it can be helpful. But most of the studies have been done on chromium 
either polynicotinate or picolinate. So if you're getting a chromium in a different form, then it may not be as effective. Mm. Um, another thing is they found that combining chromium and biotin seems to uh, improve the absorb absorption of chromium and seems to make it more effective. So we like to combine chromium and biotin. Biotin is a, is a B vitamin and in physiological doses, it doesn't do much. So you've got to get up into like the, the two to eight milligram range of biotin, which is pretty high. But if you're up in that range, studies show that that can help uh, blood sugar as well. So there's a couple, um, I mentioned berberine, cinnamon, has a long track record of improving glucose uh, levels. So a cinnamon will delay glucose absorption through the gut. So if you take it with meals, for example, it can be helpful, especially if you're eating some starch. So if you're going to eat a sweet potato, put some cinnamon mm. on it, for example. Yeah. And um, you know, there's flavonoids in cinnamon. There's a component called cinnamaldehyde, which uh, has been shown to improve insulin sensitivity and um, uh, reduce glucose excursions, which basically just means uh, the spike that you get from eating uh, you know, starch when you uh, eat something like a sweet potato. There's, uh, let's see, alpha-lipoic acid is a, is a really important uh, antioxidant that's been shown to prevent we talked earlier about uh, the, the damage to, to yeah. cells and tissues, glycation, to both blood vessels and nerves. And alpha-lipoic acid has been shown to protect those uh, sensitive cells from oxidative stress and, and glycation, and also liver cells. So uh, liver cells are very uh, at risk for oxidative stress and damage from high blood sugar. And that's how we develop fatty liver. And that's how we develop fatty liver. So alpha-lipoic acid can prevent that. Also, milk thistle um, has yeah. been shown to, to protect hepatocytes, liver cells, um, and even reverse fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. So milk thistle, for anybody with fatty liver or um, elevated triglycerides even. So uh, I, don't, I tell people not to wait for high liver enzymes. If your triglycerides are over 100, I would get on some milk thistle right away, protect those hepatocytes yeah. and alpha-lipoic acid. So let's see, berberine. Um, uh, there's a Indian gooseberry or amla is, uh, is sort of an Ayurvedic uh, or Indian uh, sort of remedy for diabetes. It's been used for thousands of years. Um, gooseberries have have sugar, so I wouldn't probably eat the gooseberries, yeah. but you can do, uh, you can do amla powder. Um, that's rich in I vitamin C too. I know that rich in vitamin C too. Yeah, I get amla powder from uh, uh, from an Indian guy that I know uh, who runs uh, Pure Indian Foods, mm. and um, he makes uh, an amla and turmeric ghee, which is really mm, good. So cool. it's sort of stirred into the ghee and. Uh, yep. The omelet is really good for blood sugar as well. So, I mean, but there's there's really dozens, like I said. I mean, you can go through, oh, bergamot is another one that's getting a lot of, uh, that's been studied uh, recently. So, uh, we're just starting to use bergamot in like 500 to 1,000 milligram doses with our clients and starting to see some pretty good results. It's also, uh, bergamot's kind of like a lemon. It's been used in Italy, um, comes from the rinds of, of the bergamot, and it's been used 
for cardiovascular health in Italy for centuries. And um, and turns out it's really good for blood sugar control as well. How about Gynema? Is that another good one that you guys like to use? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's uh, It seems to... Uh, be able to improve insulin secretion from the pancreas too. So for people who are trying to sort of squeeze out more insulin from their pancreas, gymnema is is what we use. Type Mm -hmm. diabetes, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it also decreases sugar cravings. So if, mm-hmm. uh, if we have clients who are ha- you know, having a really hard time breaking sugar cravings, we'll tell them to buy the capsules and actually put it on their tongue. So that the, the mm-hmm. bigger, bitter yeah. taste of the herb um, will have a really potent impact on mm-hmm. uh, decreasing sugar cravings. And, and Gymnema has been shown to sort of turn off the sugar sensing pathways in the tongue. So mm-hmm. When you, when you put it on your tongue, you actually don't taste sugar as much yeah. and you sort of lose your, you sort of lose your taste for it. Um, it's not permanent, but uh, if, you're, if you're trying to sort of get through a sugar craving, you can uh, just pour some of that on your tongue. The bitter quality will, will kind of suppress the appetite and suppress the sugar craving, but uh, it'll also have a sort of a, a biochemical effect on blood sugar and insulin sensitivity as well. Well, Dr. Brian, this has been a fantastic interview. We've covered a lot of material here. Any last words of inspiration and uh, anything that you want our audience to know about how to reach you and and things that you're doing? Over 75% of people uh, reportedly have some form of dysglycemia or insulin resistance. So, uh, this isn't about diabetes. It's uh, it's really for almost all of us. And uh, even if you're pretty lean, um, if you um, if you have elevated insulin levels, which you can test with a you know with a routine lab test, just ask your doctor to do a fasting insulin. Uh, if your insulin levels are elevated, which would be over six on a on a basic fasting insulin test then uh, it's something you need to pay attention to. I mean, really, we should all pay attention to it anyway. But uh, So don't think that you know if your parents aren't diabetic or you don't have diabetes in your family or you haven't been diagnosed with diabetes that this is, isn't something you should be focused on. Blood sugar control is one of those foundational pieces of health that uh, because it's our fuel metabolism, it uh, is essential for for everybody's health. It's essential for brain function, liver function, cell function, organ function. And uh, we want to do everything we possibly can to optimize our blood sugar control and our insulin sensitivity so that we can really perform at our best. Yeah, so good. Well, thanks again for being a part of the summit. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for all the great work you've done in the diabetes world, the insulin resistance world, and uh, just being one of the top functional medicine doctors that we can all look to, uh, to learn more about this condition and really how to control our blood sugar and, and live better. So thanks. Thanks again, Dr. Brian. And for those of you guys that are listening, now it's time to put it in action. So go out, start taking action with this, and we'll see you on another interview. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. 
your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.